Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 104 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? My name is Normand Gilbo, and if I say it in English, it's more like Norman Gilbo. <laughs> I'm a double bass player, composer. I'm also initiator of a project, creator of projects. And recently, the last 10 years, I've been a social worker for Aboriginal men in the correctional service. It's great to meet you. I'm glad you came down from Valmorin to my yeah. office here in Montreal. Well, uh, it's, it's a pleasure and it's an honor to be here. Yeah, and we're doing this to celebrate again. We have the Montreal Jazz Fest coming out. I'm trying to get some great bass players and I'm looking through the program and I know your name locally from around here in Quebec and Montreal. Yeah. And I think you're one of those players whose voice, name and music should go well beyond. So I'm hoping people <laughs> in the rest of the world get a chance to... It's getting late. Have plenty of time. It's jazz music. It goes forever. You Actually, can, yeah. Yeah. But story. I've been on the Montreal scene for 40 years, you know, oh. and uh, in Quebec scene. And I travel a little bit in Canada, here and there. But it's kind of hard to get out of the, the international, I would say. So I'm looking through the program for this year, and I noticed that you're doing a tribute to Mingus. Yeah. Which isn't your first time doing this. Oh, it no. It seems to me like you've got a thing for this guy. Yeah, absolutely. It's a passion, a long-time passion. And I've been doing this project, Homage Mingus, to Mingus over the last... It started in 1996. So since wow. that time, on and on and off, here and there, we're doing some concert. I did three record of this project, and I'm very proud of it because I'm a big fan. Of course, as a bass player, I'm a big fan of Mingus. But with the time I discovered the man, all the dimension of the man as a great composer, great arranger, and also an activist. So yeah. let's go back a little bit in time and talk to me a little bit about when you first heard his music. And yeah. I'd also love to know what struck you about it so uniquely. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I started playing music, actually playing electric bass. I was 14. I switched to acoustic bass around when I was 19. And about that time, of course, with friends who knew more about jazz. And for the first time I heard Mingus was the Three or Four Shades of Blues by Mingus. And that sound, I said, wow, this is something special. I was pretty green at the time. I didn't know about jazz history that much, but it struck me. It stayed there. I'm interested in many, many styles of music, but the Mingus was always there as an influence. As a player, of course, he's a, a fantastic double bass player. In the beginning of the 90s, I started my first group as a leader in 88, and already a couple songs of Mingus. And what struck me is that basically not a lot of people are playing Mingus music. Let's say in jam session. You go in jam session, who calls a Mingus tune? You know why? Because their songs are more complicated than just a basic blues or rhythm change. So, hey, let's discover this guy. Let's discover his music. And was it one of those things where you knew it was going to be a project, multiple songs, or was it, I'm adding a song here and there to the set and suddenly you're thinking, maybe there's... Yeah, it turned out to be like that with my ensemble. I had a couple of songs in the repertoire. It was a very eclectic repertoire. 
And then in 95, I was playing with this fantastic musician from Montreal, Jean Durham. He's a saxophone player, a flute player. And the meeting with him, he says, hey, man, I'm very passionate about Tomingus as you are. So I said, well, you know, let's hook up and start that project. And it started there. And then we focused really only on the music of Charles Mingus. And how has it changed over the years? Here we are in June 2023. Yeah, it's, almost, it's almost 27 years since we've been doing the project. It always evolved because as you look at the repertoire, Mingus says there's so many songs and you can go very, you know, to various direction with the songs. So for us, the idea was to let's get out the songs that are not played that much. So the Black Saint of the Saint Lady, What Love. There's so many songs and that it started like that with the first recording. That was in 96. It was a project with Radio Canada at the time. Which, for those and who don't know, is the CBC similar to the NPR in the States and things exactly. like that. Yeah. And uh, from that point on, we're just adding songs. Like on my side, I was doing lifting and arranging and preparing songs. And Jean was doing the same thing on his side. And the idea was to put that together, keep the concept as, I would say, a quintet or a sextet maximum, and, and try to reproduce as much as we can, although keep our personality basically work with the canvas and the team and the songs and be ourselves with that. And the idea of copy is the idea of interpretation. Yeah. yeah. And how long is the process to prepare for shows like this? Is it, oh. here's the sheet music, let's go. Or do you spend a lot of time rehearsing? We used to do that at the beginning. Of course, we did a lot of woodshedding and working in, in rehearsal, but over the last 10 years, basically we meet one time. We know the repertoire. It's like Mingus, if you look at his corpus, he's probably got 350 songs, maybe 400. So in a lifespan for us, maybe we have 40, 50 over the last 25 right. years. And that's a lot. There's a lot of songs already juggled with these, this repertoire. We have so many. And when you pull this together, is this something that you bring to the Jazz Fest or do they reach out to you and say, hey, we have a slot? How does that relationship work? I have a funny relationship with the Montreal Festival. <laughs> I'm the instigator of the Off Festival in, in 1999. Oh, you're a troublemaker. <laughs> okay, here we go. Year 2000. It's like, I started working and, and playing at the festival probably at the end of the 80s. In 1990, I won the uh, De Maurier Prize. Very my recognized and exclusive that was, prize. That was great. That was fantastic. 95, I did another album. And... We were looking at the scene and all the musicians in Montreal, we know all each other. It's the same everywhere. All yeah. the scenes, we know each other and we talk and all that. And we were hearing some complaints about the fact that the conditions were always the same for the local musician. And not, I would say that they were treating us badly, but the conditions were not evolving. And so we started saying, let's do our own. And it started there. So from that point on, I stopped playing at the festival, right. Montreal Festival. You're the enemy now. Well, you know, <laughs> talking about the yeah. activists there. <laughs> yeah, cooperation, I guess, might be the better yeah. word. Yeah. And is that still going on, the Off Jazz Festival? Is that still happening? Uh, the good question. I did the three first year and then passed the baton because it was interfering with being a musician. Actually, I'm not a booker. I'm a musician. So right. uh, at first I was doing the programmation and for the last, I would say the first three, four years, and slowly got out of it and some young lions to the place as if they're still going on. I think they're going on in October. Okay. And us, the idea was to do it at the same time. So that was the idea. 
So now let's go back further in time. You talked about picking up the electric bass at 14. Are you living in Montreal at that time? Give me a bit oh, yeah. of the origin story of where you're at in your life. Yeah. Well, I was, I've always been in Montreal. I was born in Little Burgundy. For people who know that, that neighborhood, they used to call it the Harlem of the North. Yeah. So it's, And uh, now it's like the, it's Griffintown now. It's yeah, very exactly. trendy and cool now. Exactly. Yeah. So it's kind of a, a mixed neighborhood, black, Irish, French Canadian. On my side, I do have origins of Gonkin origin from both sides, my mother and my father. And I was raised in that neighborhood, basically. But uh, And then it was a very tough neighborhood. I mean, oh, yeah. we're kind oh, of yeah. kidding around, but that was a tough well, neighborhood. It was, you know, people were struggling, actually. We've seen that. So I stayed there for, uh, I would say, all my childhood. And then we moved out east a little bit more. So I know pretty much all the neighborhoods in Montreal. I've been moving around here and there. And... The electric bass, it struck me because I was always passionate by music, I would say. You know, when I was a kid, I was tapping on everything and dancing and jigging and all that. Start playing drums, but it was a drum that I made with cardboard box and sure. metal can. Those are very popular now on TikTok, Norm, by the way. A lot of kids do that on TikTok. <laughs> yes, that was about 11. Then I got my first guitar, played guitar a little bit. And then I had a little band from the age of 12 to 14. and Like a garage three. band or high school or? I was, a, yeah, I was guys from the school, you know, okay. and basically we were just playing rock and roll, trying to play rock and roll. And one day, just like that, the, the, the bass player said, hey, you want to try the bass? I'll try. I want to play the guitar. So why not? And it, it was the passion right away. I tried the bass and said, oh my God, this is it. Yeah. This is the thing I like. And it started from there. Yeah. And did you have siblings, a musical family? Were your parents musical? You know, I was no sibling, but my mother was a singer. She was working in shops and stuff like that. She had a hard life, but she was singing at home. And I would say that many years after I thought about it, because all she was very Americanized, and we were listening to all the singers like Nat King Cole, Tony Bennett, Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, Billy Holiday, I can name them all. That was playing at home. She was really a music lover, used to go for contests for singing and all that. So she was into that, but she knew that she had to make a living, have two jobs and raise a kid. And that passion for music started there. For me, at the time, I was more into Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. So I used to close my door and not listen to the, these singers. But after that, when I thought about it, I said, yeah, it sank in. Yeah. Because when I got 20, when I got to the conservatory, when I started playing jazz, on a more serious level. Then I said, oh, oh, and playing with singers. Oh, I know that song. I know this song. And that's, it's funny, eh? It's funny how osmosis of music works from other people. Yeah. As you were telling that story, I was suddenly reminded, and I hadn't thought about this before, that my father was a big music fan. Vinyl, cassettes. We even had, I think, one of the first CD players that ever wow. came out. The Philips, the big chunky one. And I remember going through his cassettes and pulling out one of those, I don't know if you remember those Sony jazz compilation, the white cassette with the different artists. So they would just switch the artists out. And it was Chick Corea. Now, again, I never made the connection until now of that tape. And at the time, I was probably already starting to be exposed to Jacko. I'm a bit younger than you. And so I came to Jacko at the right age, 16, 17. But that album was already older. Yeah. It wasn't like it had come out and it was somewhere in the zeitgeist of the world. Uh -huh. And it's funny how I probably listened to that cassette and thought, what is this? And yeah. now 
Yeah. Biggest trickery of fantasy it's, uh, it sinks in. It's like he, you forget about it, and even you're not too crazy about it at the time. And then when you think about it, years later, it's like, something oh, worked. Yeah, something went in. Yeah. And that passion, I still have that passion for that music. I still listen to Frank. I still listen to Tony Bennett. I'm a big fan of singers. Always been. It's still there. And talk a bit about you're playing electric bass. There's Hendrix, the Stones, the Who, yeah. that's all happening. And I mean, that music also here where we live in Montreal was very, very popular. It was everywhere. Yeah. And yet something pushes you to the double bass, yeah. to a different type of music. Because I'm going to presume you're not playing Purple Haze when you pick up the double bass. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it was, a, well, there's a gap there in between the age of 14 and 19. Like many young adolescents, I go to the old forum and I listen to a Super Tramp and I've seen the Genesis a, a couple of times. Oh, yeah. You know, all these progressive rock bands. So I'm into that, Jet Rotal, listening to all these groups. Of course, Hendrix is still there. I'm still listening to Hendrix, actually. Never stopped that. And then one of my friends, who's a, he's a really, really good guitar player at the time, and they said, hey, man, there's a show in Montreal there at the Théâtre Saint-Denis. They call themselves What a Report. Oh and I heard God. that bass player is supposedly, he's a fantastic bass player. I'm 19. That's in 1979. So I'll go there, not aware of what I'm going to see. And then I see Jacko. Of course, What a Report. I, hold on. I didn't even know yeah. that Weather Report with Jocko played... I didn't even know that they'd 1979 come... 1979, See, when I think of Jacko in Montreal, I think of the infamous 1983 Jazz Festival show. Yeah, yeah. I didn't realize... Did he come through a lot back then? Or? Well, yeah, well, they came with Water Report a couple of times. I remember oh, they played the Place des Nations. That was 1980 or 81. Ah, Norm, you're so lucky. So they came so lucky. in 79, ah. they came in 81. Then Jacko came here in 84 with his band. And unfortunately, the yeah, season in 87, yeah. but... All that, they, these shows, I've seen all these shows. and But that first one, it was just amazing. It was a mind blower. And actually, I stopped playing electric bass. You know, this is the craziest <laughs> thing ever. I'm going to tell you a crazy story, Norm. Yeah. So we talked about the Montreal Jazz Festival. I was telling you before we recorded that I was really excited to speak to Avishai Cohen. Yes. Who is also playing this year. Mm -hmm. And I just published that interview with him. And I don't do many, many interviews. We do 12 of these a year. Mm. He had the exact same story. Yeah. 14, 16 years old. His parents moved, I think, to Minnesota. Yeah. His bass teacher gave him a tape that had Jacko on one side and Weather Report on the yeah. other. And he literally said it. He switched to the stand-up bass because he thought there's nothing more to do Sorry. on the electric bass. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's crazy. That, was, uh, that was, for me, it was like a game changer total. I thought I was a good play bass player. I was working <laughs> in my room and jetting and all that getting my chops together and all that. I was kind of green and all that, but I didn't know anything about this guy. So I go there with my friend, and at the end of the concert, I came out, I was shaking. I was like from yeah, head to toes, I, I was can't shaking even imagine. of what I've seen. And this guy, what he was doing with the bass playing chords and dancing like James Brown on top of that, with no shirt and everything. So he was a showman on top of that, and he was just playing all these lines. It was just incredible. I said, Never I'll be able to play like that. Wow. It's like Mars there. So I said, forget about this. I put my electric bass in the corner and stayed there for years. And at the same time, talking about Mingus and the three or four shade of blues, got an opportunity to get a, an acoustic bass. It was not a very good bass. It was like I paid it like five hundred dollars or something like that. The action was very high and all that. 
But I said, oh, I'll try that. We'll see what's going to happen with this. And of course, it was very difficult at the time because I had no technique. And naively, I thought it would be easy to make the switch. Yeah, not, not easy. Wow. But very rapidly, I got a teacher and the man, uh, Tony DiCaro. This, uh, very well known here. respect yeah, to you. He was in the symphony, Montreal Symphony. Yeah. And so I studied with him two years. So he gave me all the technique, helped me out with the bow and all that. And from that point, I said, Norman, I tried the audition at the conservatory and they got me. They, they, they took me. So it's funny, eh? There's this weird psychology too, that as you were talking about that switch, I was thinking about being probably 14 or 15 in my room, mm. holding this knockoff jazz bass that I probably got for 50 bucks or something. Mm. And the playing. I'm talking about Jacko, Billy Sheehan, yeah. Getty Lee, Jack Bruce, John Entwistle. John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones. And I'm wondering about the psychology now of somebody who hears that and doesn't think I should quit, but I should keep going versus yeah. people who feel it's like interesting. there's a weird thing there yeah, yeah, about yeah. how we see yeah. music of if yeah. I can't be better or like for me, I think I listened to that and thought, I don't know if I'll ever do that. But I can appreciate it as a color in a palette yeah, of choices of course, here. Of course. And it never yeah. drove me away from four strings, even at the time, to even amplify this more, probably mutual from, but mm -hmm. Alain Caron too. Yeah, of course. Here in Quebec, we had Uzeb at the same time, and yeah. he would do things on yeah. the bass where you just thought, he's playing an instrument that's way out of my financial league. <laughs> he's doing it with gear. and like It just yeah. seemed like such yeah. a crazy technological hurdle on yeah. top of it. Yeah. Well, it's a choice we make. In the case of Alain, and I know him as a very good friend, he tried to go further than where Jack was. Did. And well, he, yeah. still, he still does. He's got his style. And all these guys that all comes from Jacko somewhere. Jacko was, uh, he was a Charlie Parker of his time. Yeah. An innovator, somebody that brought something totally new. So, But it's and, not hard to take that norm and to say the exact same thing about Mingus. No. And yet Mingus inspired and pushed you yeah. versus it sounds like Jacko inspired yeah. and pushed you out. <laughs> well, the thing about Mingus is that it's not only about his bass playing. Ah. That's the thing. It's accomplishable. Although Jacko was a composer, composer was. a great composer, great songs and all that. But Mingus, uh, there's so many colors of this persona that he's got. And that's what's interesting about him is discovering all these facets of his personality as an activist, as I said, as a great composer, as a, somebody who's always brings some kind of, in his music, there's something, I wouldn't say a rage, but there's something that very grounded and mix of different influence, like church, Dixieland, contemporary music, hard bop. I mean, you got all that. Not saying Jacko doesn't have his thing. He's, yeah, he's got his thing. Sure. But for Mingus, is that aspect is so large that it brought me in. So let's talk about culture, music. I'll call it privilege in terms of when we're born and how we're born. Mm. You're sitting here as I was in Montreal. It's a different generation between you and I, clearly. And yet you have French Canadian roots. You have native roots. Yep. You're living in Montreal, which for those who don't know, is probably one of the most European cities in North America, would I say. would say. Yeah. 
I would say we live in a culture of French and English, mm-hmm. which can be both beautiful and very contentious politically. There's yeah. challenges within that. There's challenges within English and French community and the native community. Of we course. sit here in the middle of many sure. reservations and Kanawake, uh, Oka, Kanastake, you know, all yeah. that. And at the same time, Montreal is this fascinating hub of other cultures coming in from the concerts and the experiences. Absolutely. So when I see someone like you, Norm, and I think about your work, there's that part of culture, which I'm interested in you talking a little bit about how it impacts your bass playing and how you see the art. Mm. But all the art you create, you kept mentioning the word activist. There is work you've done around Jack Kerouac. There's yeah. work you've done around Louis Real. Yeah. There's work you've done around Mingus and others. Yeah. You don't just play compositions, you attach it to content. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm interested in history. I was always like that as a young boy at school. I always had the very good notes at school with history. I was passionate by history. And of course, because of my roots, I would say it draw me in, in, into Louis Riel, of course, because for the people who don't know, Louis Riel, he was a Métis from out west from Manitoba, but he's the founder of the province of Manitoba. The yeah. name comes so from So very from unique Louis Riel. that you would have that combination in and of itself. I would say, yeah. This is something that came late in my life. Actually, it was not something that the family was talking about. Although when I was talking to my grandfather, who really had trays, very strong trays as an atheist, and I was asking him, do we have like ancestors and all that? And it was, no, 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 or to that. So he's not very proud of that. Didn't actually try to hide it. Sure. And so it stayed like that. But in the 90s, especially with the Oko crisis, it was a wake-up call for me. It's like, hey, Norm, you got to go back, dig the roots and when I did my family tree, it was obvious that they were all over the place. So from that point on, it came in my life as a priority to make sure that I identify myself also. Yeah. I'm a French Canadian, but I'm also part native and I'm proud of that. Yeah. And when you're thinking about names like Louis Real or even Jack Kerouac, yeah. what is it that makes you want to attach it to music? How do you make that connection as a player? What are you thinking about? I don't know. It's like, for me, being an interpreter or just a sideman is not satisfying enough. As I say, being interested in industry and persona, like Mingus is a very strong person. Image, Jack Kerouac, what brought me to Jack Kerouac actually, of course, is his poetry, his writings and all that. But he was also French-Canadian roots. And his love of jazz in the beginning of the 2000 and all that, I was working with poets a lot, and those poets were saying, Hey, Norm, do you know Jack Kerouac? You should check him out because he's a jazz lover. I like to dig in in projects like that. When I choose a thematic like Jack Kerouac or Louis Riel or Charles Mingus, I do make a lot of Deep dive, as they say. It's very important. Riel, I worked four years before that project was done. Kerouac was two years and a half, maybe more. On and off, and Mingus, I can't, you know, it's it's been in my life for so many years. So I do dig in, go research, get, make my research. In the case of Kirwak, when I discovered all the recordings that he left and, and doing his prose, I heard music right away. In how he was saying things or in how it was written, how the phrasing was. You mean for Jack? Yeah. Well, you know, you're saying I, hear, I heard it right away. What did you hear? You heard the beats, you heard the rhythm. I heard, I heard the rhythm. I heard the rhythm. I was like, out we jump and he was just going on. It was talking, it was talking pretty fast and it, it sounded like bebop. It sounded like, 
It's like a drum solo. And actually, I brought it in into the bass where I started to do some mimicking, like his voice and all that. I I did some recordings on that. And it's a little project that I do once in a while, you know, although there's not a lot of call for for having a project that's very specific like that. It's not everybody that it's interests. And it was the same for Riel. And but for me, it was the most important thing was to, I'm passionate by music, I'm passionate by history. Let's put that together. Let's see what's going to happen. And that's it. So here we sit, bass is your instrument. What is your schedule like? How often are you playing the bass? Is it hours and hours a day on end? Is it the thing you pick up here and there? How serious are you about it? And I ask this too from the perspective of, we're not getting any younger. Nope. And these are complex instruments people always say ah the bass is easy it's heavy it's intense it's a lot of yeah you can get arthritis pretty quickly with this instrument yeah can you talk about how you play and how you think about playing now versus when you were younger absolutely i did start playing acoustic bass like i said i was 19 when i started i was extremely serious about practicing i was practicing seven hours a day and really trying to get everything the technique the left hand the bow and all that and as a young musician, you want to be on top of your playing. So I remember till, and I remember when I was in the twenties, I was saying, well, if I, at 30 years old, I don't achieve what I want to achieve, I'll quit. And, but, but that wasn't a serious thing. Yeah. Is. And I did work a lot, practice a lot. All my life was dedicated to playing bass and playing jazz. And the year going on as, start to let it go a little bit. It was not as much as a priority. Family came in, kids, and projects. It's like, you have to make a choice. If you're a band leader and you do create projects, you also have some work to research to do. When you're doing that, you're not playing bass. And I would say for the last 15, 20 years, the bass, I put it in the corner and I look at it. (laughs) That's not good. (laughs) No, it's not true. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I do have some long moments where I don't touch it. But all these years of playing, I've been playing for more than 40 years. When I I get new project or as a a sideman or freelancer, I get new music. That's where I practice. I practice the song. I'm not a scale player. I'm not a arpeggio player. Once in a while, I try to integrate that in the new music I'll play. Sure. So all the new songs I'm doing, I, I combined that. Time is a very, uh, it's something, it goes fast. Like you say, time flies and I'm doing two jobs also. I'm a, also a social worker, working with a virginal man in the carceral system. So I do that three days a week and the rest of the time while I'm playing music or I prepare, arrange, prepare some groups and all that. I try to touch my bass as much as I can, but sometimes, hey, I'm a couple of weeks without touching it. Wow. And it doesn't hurt me, actually. It's always there. It's in my end. And is that the only instrument you'll play? Do you have other instruments you play? You Have you picked up an electric bass? or uh, I still play electric bass. Actually, when I do arrangement and composition, I work with electric bass. Okay. I got my little setup, my little studio, and I'm not playing my acoustic bass. I'm playing on electric. Okay. But the acoustic bass, it's always in the corner. I got a five string with a high C, and wow. I got the, my old German 1885 four string bass. And But like I say, it's like, For me, I can be two weeks without touching it. And when I touch it, I'm at the same place I was two weeks ago. Do you think in bass? Because I know for many players, even when they're not playing it, 
in their brains, they're thinking about lines and melodies and it's like a comedian who can't stop looking for a joke type of thing. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. I'm always searching. Recently, over the last uh, three, four years, I've been doing a project on traditional French Canadian music. Oh. So wow. jigs and reels. So I'm playing that, adapt that to a bass and do multiple track of bass. So uh, I got an arrangement of Hangsman reel with bass. So I go in studio, I work all the line, I do all the arrangements. So a lot of time is spent on arrangement and a lot of time then it's woodshedding, getting the lines together and play it. But that takes time. Yeah. So, and like I say, uh, as a, a musician, I go many ways. But there's a real artist in you because you're not thinking about, will this be popular? Could this be a show? It seems like you just get interested in something and you start playing with it. Yeah. Yeah, actually, uh, getting famous, uh, it's too late. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> One interview with no treble and we could be on our way. You never know. We'll see how that well, goes. Well, people know, will know a little bit more about, uh, you know, who That's I am. Sure. And But for me, this is not the goal. The goal is not to be famous. The goal is to be inspired by something and go for it. And if the people like it, that's great. If they don't, it's too bad. I'll go somewhere else. I don't stop being interested and being passionate by subject persons or players, great players and all that. I go all over the place. I find it interesting that when the whole George Floyd thing happened in the U.S., a lot of my conversations with my friends who are there wasn't that we don't have systemic racism here in Montreal or Canada. Mm. It wasn't about black versus white or African-American versus. Mm. My comment at the time was Canada had a different thing going on. We had the residential school. Yep. We had an awakening that if this is happening there, our stain yep. would definitely be Aboriginal and native rights. Yeah. There was an amplification of this that came very much on the tail of Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip, who was very vocal about yeah. getting some type of reconciliation happening at scale. Yeah. It seems like it's a conversation we hear more and more. But what I find most interesting is this kind of brewing up of music yeah. from these groups. Yeah. And in conversations with some of my friends or peers about it, it seems like it's almost like this survivalist mindset of we need to find these songs and capture them before the people who knew them are gone. Yeah. We forget that that music wasn't recorded. Well, well, was. If you took the example of, if you know a little bit about ethnomusicology, Frances Densmore, she was at the beginning of the other century. She did a lot of recordings, all nations from the Midwest, American Midwest. And these recordings are still there. The Smithsonian Institute and all that. We but can't there find seems that. to be a real interest in this. Yeah. And an interest in integrating it into other genres. Aboriginal jazz, Aboriginal hip-hop, urban. Yeah. Well, look at the Tribe Called Red or yeah. Robbie Robertson. Of course, Robbie's for been years. there for a long time. Yeah. Buffy St. Marie, she's always been out there outspoken as also an activist, a big influence for me also. But for the young generation, more and more, they tend to say, hey, let's take our place here. We do have a culture. Let's be proud of our culture. Let's put it up there. And music is part of that. Yeah. And all these young musicians, especially power group singer, I, I was in, in a group, in a power group singer for uh, three years almost. 
So I'll learn a lot of songs and the tradition, put that tradition out there so that people know about it. Because for so many years, for generation generation, we were not there. I was, it was kind of, yeah. I guess where I'm going is it's feeling not only that it's more accepted, but it's actually cool. Yeah. That's what it's starting to really feel like, finally. Sure. So many interesting projects out there. And more and more, it's going to be, people are going to be more sensitive to the culture. Art is made for that. What is your favorite bass line? (laughs) (laughs) Paul Chambers. Paul Chambers. Yeah. Visitation. 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 Why? Wow, it's a great line. Paul Chambers, actually. What a great influence for so many, many players, eh? For me, when I started listening to jazz, the two ones that struck me the most were Ray Brown and Paul Chambers. And Good names. Yeah, big names and great, great, great players, sound-wise, rhythm-wise, line-wise. Everything was integrated. Paul Chambers, especially with the bow, all the solos that he did with the bow. So, yeah, for me, this is the uh, quintessential of, of of jazz, you know? Yeah. And do you find yourself playing it, thinking about it a lot? Is it a song that you... I still play these songs. It's your go-to. Oh, yeah, sure. I still play these songs. For me, they're a major influence. I still consider myself essentially as a jazz musician. I've been a jazz musician for all these time. But not only that. I'm not only a jazz musician, but I still... This is my roots. When I came on the scene in Montreal, that was at the beginning of the 80s. And coming from Little Burgundy, I had the opportunity to play with a lot of Afro-Canadian. Stan Patrick, Nelson Simon, Ray Downs. I played a little bit with Oliver. Charlie Biddle was in the, on the scene. I was not playing. Yeah, I mean, he was people a bass player, know, but you, he used to call all, me to sub for him. Yeah, you said Oliver, but Oliver Jones yeah. was from that area. There's exactly. murals he about was, him there now. Legendary, yeah. 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 My mom and all that. And then... I was actually, that that was my school. That was my school. That was the, the Afro-Canadian school of music, jazz music. So learn to play on the stage. And I remember when I used to start playing at Biddles at the time, I used to come down with my fake book there and they would look at me and say, what are you, what are you doing, kid? Put that thing away there. You can, yeah. you'll, you'll find a song. Oh, so was, you're nervous, you're a young musician, you want to do good, and you, you know a little bit of the song, but if you can read it, that's good. But then they put the book away, and you jump and you play. And you catch, actually. You learn how to work with your ears, and the more and more it comes easily, and then 20, 100 songs, because the turnaround is a bridge and all that. A lit motif there that's almost always there in standards, especially. So that was my school. And I was very fortunate to have encountered these musicians in my life. They came in my life, and I played with Nelson Simon for 15 years. For people who don't know Nelson Simon, go on YouTube and check Wes Montgomery. He's talking about Nelson. At the end of the 50s, he was interviewed. The man was asking, so who's a good guitar player to you these days? And we're talking about the end of the 50s. Oh, he said, well, I met this guy. Check him out. His name is Nelson Simon. He's from Montreal. And he's got a very special style, and he's playing solos with chords and all that. I was very fortunate because Nelson was a very humble man, but he was a very dedicated to the music. That's His life was only that. And I used to go to practice in this little one and a half there on the, the fort in St. Catherine, and it was incredible. This is, it was the greatest, greatest school for me. 
Do you think that that advice still holds if somebody young came to you and said, I've been playing for five years, I want to move to be a professional in this? Is that the advice you would give them? Just go for it. We live in a different world with digital technology. Now yeah. AI is coming for us all. Yeah. It seems like it's a much harder road to be a professional musician than oh, it yeah, ever it was. Is. It is. I came at the end of an era where jazz was an oral tradition. Yeah. You see? At the beginning of the 80s, the end of the 70s, they started to have programs in university, college, and all that. Then jazz came in the schools. I touched that a little bit. I went to cardio for two years, and I've learned a lot, and I met a lot of good musicians out there and good teachers and all that. But basically, I was lucky because I touched that last part of that whole road tradition where you learn the music on the stage. And... and I would say the hard way, but it was not that hard. But it's hard to do that now because those stages don't exist. Exactly. That's something that we lost. That's why I'm doing some social work. Over the last 10 years, I've been doing something else. I had to redefine my career because as a musician, I couldn't earn my uh, living with this. And all the reasons are that all the, uh, let's say, CBC, we used to do some recording. NFB, we used to do some recordings. Hard live musician all the session, music for dance, music for theater, all that. All that's gone. And plus the club. When I started playing in Montreal in the 80s, it was about seven or eight jazz club happening at the same time. And that's not a lot if you compare to New York yeah. in the 50s. But still, it was there was something there. And then slowly, one club after the other one went down. And now you look at the musician, the schools are full of great musicians and all that, but no opportunity to play. There's two clubs now in Montreal that's almost two and a half. Yeah. And yet it's strange too, because the other side is because of streaming services, you have more exposure than ever before. You have the ability to record and distribute your music like you never could before. Mm. There's these weird changes where there's this check and balance that happens. Well, we have to adapt. Yeah. Basically, that's what it is. eh? We have to adapt now. This is the way it is. Before you used to make yourself seen in the club and heard in the clubs. And the jam session were happening and the gigs, there was a lot of opportunity to play concert in the Maison de la Culture or things like that. Now it's so sparse. That's the only place. It's the web. So, you know, you do your own page and you record your shows and then people can see what you do. Do you find your bass playing has changed and adapted? How do you think about bass playing at your age where we're at in the world? Do you think about it differently than you did when you were younger? I don't know. I don't know. It certainly evolved. It's like uh, the, the virtuosity, there's no problem with virtuosity. There's a lot of virtuos out there. But sometimes virtuosity, just for that, I don't hear music in that. For me, music is something that's a global. You have your personality. Playing a ballad, just playing one big note like Charlie Aiden used to do, is still valuable. And for me, the evolution of, let's say if I was a young bass player today, I would try to check out all the old guys that were there before forge my personality a bit like i did actually like talk about mingus and ray brown and paul chambers and gary peacock all these great players all of them almost are gone but their music is there and for me this is one of the advice that when i get students there and there this is the advice go back the music didn't start in the 80s with Jacko. It was before that. And although Jacko is in link with that history, and that's important. So look at everybody, listen to everybody, make your own mind on 
what's important for you and what kind of style you want and develop your own style. It's one of the things I actually love about jazz is I think there's a lot of virtuosity in it. It is, yeah. I grew up as a metal punk guy and then I got into the shredders and all that sort of Mm. stuff. But when I started getting back into classical jazz, original jazz, Mm. my discovery was it's just that without distortion. I mean, for all what they're doing, it's so complex and wild. I can't imagine walking into a club, whether it's Montreal, Chicago, New York City, somewhere in Paris, and seeing some of these players. Can you imagine seeing Mingus the first time? Yeah. I mean, that was as crazy as walking in to see Rush or Genesis ripping. Absolutely, of course. For me, like I say, virtuosity is one thing, but never forget, as a bass player, actually, never forget what is the role of the bass player. Well, you that's know, a good question. Well, you tell me, then, what is the role of the bass player? Because well, we could have that you discussion. You have to play the rhythm. You got to fit in the group. You are the pivotal member of the group. You have to support. It's a group mentality. You can't be individualistic as a bass player. Sometimes I sit in clubs and I see the bass player and he's all over the neck. He's playing crazy stuff, virtual stuff, but he's not playing bass. And and for me, it's annoying because the role of the bass, and you look at the history of the bass, fundamentally is there to support. So play that thing. If you got that thing, then you, the rest is extra and it's bonus. But you have to play that role. Do you believe that it could be done both? Of course. What attracts me more to the instrument these days is when it is lead, while at the same time being the foundational glue. Yeah, That's the most exciting part of it because that's what I feel is getting it beyond just the root yeah. of sinking in with a kick drum mm. into what a trumpet player is doing or a guitarist is doing. Yeah. I like when it's making sounds. I think it's why it took me a while to get really into the Beatles. But when you listen to what is happening there, you think it's a tuba, but it's actually mm. the bass. Yeah. And he was a great bass player. He's great still bass, a great bass player. Yeah, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen Three, Two, One, McCartney, the documentary with Rick no. Rubin. Oh, it's fantastic. It's, yes. Eh? Oh, it's just a. I mean, if anyone ever yeah. questions Paul yeah. McCartney and bass playing, <laughs> Three, Two, One, McCartney with Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin, yeah. where he's going through the songs and they're just playing and amping up the bass. There are parts of Beatles songs that you would swear is not the bass, and it's a hundred percent the bass. Yeah, exactly. It's an amazing conversation. Well, is he was an innovator, oh. and that, and he was assuming that role. Yeah. As a bass player, he was really out there. He was solid, solid foundation and all that. And intricate lines and sometimes virtuoso line. Yeah. And fundamentally, it's, for me, this is what I look for. When a bass player is complete like that, he covers all the spectrum of the instrument. This is fantastic because you hear the fundamental. He's capable of doing that. He's got a good support there. And then when it's time for soloing, he's got the place. You got it. Do your thing come back to what's the fundamental role. For me, this is what is all about playing bass. Tell me a bit about what you're thinking about now. Meaning, is there a book, an artist, something happening in the activism world where you feel that connection, that pull, the same way you have for Mingus or Riel or Kerouac? Is there something that's right out of reach right now for you, Norm, that you think for sure has some sort of music attachment to the bass for you? I don't know. It's a good question. It's a tough question, actually, because there's so many things out there. Personally, when I think about my last 
10 years, like I say, for me, refocusing on my roots, doing some research, because I, I consider myself a searcher. You're an archaeologist. Yeah, and I've been listening to really, like, I'm talking about recordings, like, old cylinders. I know you're talking about the wax cylinders. The black cylinders, the wax cylinder there. Mm -hmm. So 1918, 1920, I mean, we're going back there. And for me, folkloric music is something that's really interesting. Yeah. Let's not forget about that. Let's go check that out because we're a lot into the modernity. Everything goes fast and we're working with the new gear and new stuff and all that. But let's not forget about the past and let's go back to the past. So, Well, you see that with Americana. You see this with the emergence of folk music. Yeah. And it's popular. So yeah. I don't see why that wouldn't transcend from America to whether it's Aboriginal, to whether it's Canadian, to whether it's Irish, to whether it's whatever it might be. Well, Afro, Afro-American music also yeah. and the old blues and all that. I'm into that all the time. I'm curious. I'm curious about all style. I'm not a specialist. I don't consider my specialist. I don't want to be a specialist. <laughs> I want to be eclectic as much as possible because so many good things are there too and interesting. So for me, look around, be curious. This is the best. It nourishes yourself. And then you can integrate that in your style, in your music, and bring something new maybe. Never That's know. Great. Well, Norm, thanks so much for your time. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm.